You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. That, that's right, it is our disheveled, shriveled up, wrapped up fetus of a child. Typical Lydia. <laughs> Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1977 Lynchian classic, Eraserhead. Yeah, a top of mind for a lot of horror fans is their favorite horror film. I don't see it, unfortunately. It's just not what someone says. What's your favorite horror film? Eraserhead wouldn't be my answer. No, no, uh, probably not for me either. This film brought to us by a special request by our number one fan, Thomas. And when you guys give us a request, we just say, okay. It's definitely true. And Thomas does have really good taste in horror. Mm-hmm. Um, he's recommended a lot of real hits. And this is a great one that we needed to get to. And I'm glad that we've been uh, kind of shoved along and sort of like made to do this. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want anyone to think if you're tuning in and you love this film, I think there's a lot to recommend about it. And it certainly is, in my estimation, a film that you probably should watch if you're a cinephile and if you are interested in genre pictures, if you're interested in surrealist filmmaking, if you're interested in David Lynch, these are this is an absolute no-brainer. You must watch this film. A lot of really top horror filmmakers would cite this as an influence. A mm-hmm. lot of artists otherwise and musicians will cite this as an influence. Um, although if you are a straight up pop horror genre fan and you really enjoyed Insidious or something and someone recommends to you Eraserhead, you may not have that same sort of fun with it. Uh, but yeah, if you're a cinephile and really like classic horror or very interested in more surrealist or body horror, this is a definite must see. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel as though the legacy of Eraserhead, when you're sitting down to watch it, will loom a little bit larger than the actual experience itself. I feel when people get creeped out about this movie, there's definitely some unsettling things within it. But ultimately, it's just strange. And that uneasiness can be what people will be satisfied from, just a general feeling of malaise and just unease yeah Yeah. discomfort watching it Mm -hmm. um if you're prone to that if you're not you may just have a plain old good time and it doesn't strike you as horror or weird or absurd at all Mm -hmm. but as our show branches out here and there about the types of films that we're going to be talking about i think it actually makes perfect sense that we talk about Eraserhead. you know well we were watching this film we were talking about the fact that Sometimes it doesn't feel like a horror movie at all, and sometimes it feels like something that maybe we shouldn't even be talking about at Dead Air Podcast, SplatterPictures.net, but it's so top of mind for horror aficionados. It ends up on people's lists. Other horror podcasts talk about it. Horror YouTubers talk about it. It is part of that midnight madness aspect of horror you know, our local theater plays it and and it is it, it will get played in the same vein as Texas Chainsaw or anything else that here's our special midnight showing. 
we're doing Eraserhead. So it still occupies the same space in a lot of people's minds. When you say the legacy may loom larger, good alliteration there, little <laughs> Wes. Um, it does. And that same can be said for something as classic as Nosferatu, where mm-hmm. people nowadays who are fans of a more modern pop horror may watch Nosferatu and be bored by it. I've heard yeah. that complaint many times. People yeah. who complain about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and say yeah. it's okay for what it was, but it's old. You know, that sort of shit. Yeah. Um, it does occupy that same sort of space. And also, it reminds me a lot of films that aren't necessarily horror that rank among my most favorite horror films like the reflecting skin Mm -hmm. which isn't one tossed out by many horror fans as a favorite horror film it doesn't necessarily ring as horror and you sit someone down as a horror fan to watch it they might be confused that and beloved starring oprah winfrey Mm -hmm. which is probably the number one feminist and black horror film i've ever fucking seen and it's amazing body horror. It's a possession. It's a ghost film. It's everything. It's a beautiful, it's an interesting book, but this is one case where the film outranks the book in my mind. It's a beautiful fucking horror film, but it's not a horror film. And a lot of people sat down to watch it would again be confused. So I could see you sitting down a horror fan in front of a racer head and them being just confused. Yeah. Especially if you're not really into interpretation. I'm of a mindset when it comes to film interpretation that if I'm not getting anything from it, I try. I don't really try any harder. If I just feel like I'm getting a frank story about a ghost or a killer or whatever, I don't try to go into deeper meanings about things. And I think it's just because I never trained my brain to watch film in that way. Not even as a joke? No, not even really as a joke. You don't sit down and watch like Maniac Cop and try and find some like deep themes in there and what the political atmosphere was at the time and how that informed all that plate glass smashing? (laughs) Watching a film like Maniac Cop, I definitely can see what the film is taking and twisting it, the idea of police brutality and that kind of thing. But no, for the most part, (laughs) I don't really watch Maniac Coffin and say, oh, this is so representative of man's inner struggle. (laughs) Although Eraserhead kind of is. Eraserhead is a film that is undeniably symbolic, undeniable. And you can't look at it as a frank story you can't really you can't and anyone who would be watching a film like this or tetsuo uh, which is a film that we've covered earlier in our run and fans of tetsuo who haven't seen Racerhead will really enjoy it like, oh number, absolutely yeah. absolutely they occupy the same space yeah. every frame that you're watching of a Racerhead, you know that what you're watching is not what you're watching and so you start learning as the movie progresses to look past what David Lynch is filming and start talking about what David Lynch is trying to say. And I think that if anyone was going to be interested in film studies or armchair philosophy, film interpretation, this is a wonderful film to get you into that headspace to teach you how to see the forest for more than the trees. And if you don't get it, there's much writing, many YouTube videos, a lot of people discussing this film and have since its inception. So if if you watch it and you don't get it and you're lost, there's lots of there's lots of help to be had. So you can definitely 
uh, dip your toe into the giant pool and mm-hmm. the giant weird murky fucking pool that <laughs> is film interpretation. Yeah. Uh, it's also really fun to go into it without any of those preconceived notions and experience it for what you will and take away from it what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really open to that as well. Or just marvel at some of the scenes that maybe don't have much deeper meaning, like him steaming one of his socks on the radiator. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite scene. <laughs> I can just imagine that horrible smell of a workaday sock filling the air. <laughs> he stepped in a dirty old mud puddle. That may or may not have been full of sperm. Another one of my favorite scenes in this uh, has the song In Heaven, sung yeah. by the girl in the radiator. And it's it's a cute little short little song, but I was introduced to covers of that song. There's quite a few covers of that song, but Jay Retard does a cover of that song. And it's probably the prettiest song Jay Retard ever did, who's more famous for like a really garage punk sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in his one of his final albums, Blood Visions, he covers in heaven of all fucking things, but it just shows that giant spread of the influence of Lynch and this particular film. Um, music's been on my mind aside from watching this. And I was looking forward to watching this as soon as it was suggested to us uh, to see the radiator girl sing in heaven. That's mm-hmm. like one of my favorite things about this whole movie. But yeah, on an offshoot scary tales three is out. I know I mentioned a couple episodes ago, but patron saint of plagues, uh, has Scary Tales 3 out. We've been listening to it and we really enjoy it. So I think you should check it out too at patronsaintofplagues.bandcamp.com. But what got me onto the Bandcamp again lately was some childhood friends of mine have released a song called Canadian Idol. And not Idol, I-D-O-L, but Idol, I-D-Y-L. Mm-hmm. Which is a word that enters a lot of my reading, reading up about hillbilly horror and stuff like that. So those that have read a lot about hillbilly horror would be more um, familiar with the term idol as an idyllic. But Canadian Idol, um, it's sung by Pauline Wilson, who was a friend of the family because the Wilsons had come over here 36 years ago from the UK and their children ben and matt ben was about my age so we're some of our first we were our family was some of their first friends when they landed over here and i was probably one of his first kid friends you know because we were about the same age and our parents became very close as well and of course last year my mom passed away from cancer this year pauline and matt have sung a song this song canadian idol where all the proceeds of the purchase of the song go to cancer research and the terry fox foundation and it's a lot about canada and their appreciation for this country and what was going on when they first landed here was the terry fox run and so it's a it's about that basically about this country and what terry fox would have seen on his run so it's a really touching song and pauline has a wonderful voice i really wish my mom would have been around to hear one of her closer friends sing this beautiful song and what a wonderful she has the same singing voice that she's had since i was a kid just beautiful It's really nice to hear. So if you're interested, go to mwmusic.bandcamp.com. Check out the song. Be patriotic. This is about as patriotic as we get here in Canada, right? So yeah, go check that out. And any, like I said, any donation or purchase goes straight to Cancer Research. Yeah, if you guys are interested in that. And yeah, and you know, I can't recommend Scary Tales 3 enough. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Patron Saint of Plagues have been very gracious about allowing us to use their music for our intro and outro. And 
and and so not belonging smoke up your ass because they allow us to do that but scary tales 3 is a very good album i listened to the whole thing top to bottom yesterday and i absolutely love it i don't even know which one of my i don't even know which Song on is my favorite, but I just fucking like them all. I just have a soft spot for Vampire because... Vampire's a really good song. Bloody Mary is a really good song. It hadn't been on an album up until this point, so it's sort of like uh, the holy grail of mm. Patron Santa Plague song. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you guys... Uh, our current outro, which might be changing, I'm not sure. We're fiddling with it. But our current outro of Children is on that album as well, so... Yeah, so you can pick up your dead air-related music. <laughs> Absolutely. PatronSantaPlagues.bandcamp.com yeah. And uh, you can check out his YouTube as well because there's all kinds of content mm-hmm. out there as far as Patron Santa Plagues and Andy Negative goes. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite entirely done with the pluggery yet. Uh, my friend Tyson Carlson mm-hmm. was recently at the Blood in the Snow Film Festival in Toronto. Cool name for a film festival. Uh, isn't it? Isn't it? It's not snowing yet, but it could have been. It very well <laughs> fucking could have been. Uh, We might as well just be thought of as in the snow continuously here in Canada, really. Uh, But they had the Toronto premiere of Stillborn, the short film, Mm -hmm. a wonderful short film. Very, very cool. Mm -hmm. I had shown it to Wes uh, previously because I had been privy to a screener of it, and I'd shown it to uh, Chris of Bind Torture cast, and they spoke about it on the show several episodes ago. And it's been making the festival rounds here and there. And in the Blood and the Snow Festival specifically, they had a very special announcement that the Stillborn team will be bringing us their first feature-length film, Mm -hmm. and it will be an adaptation of Tony Burgess's book, People Live Still in Cashtown Corners. Now, that fucking book. You want to talk about things that are much better experienced on all kinds of drugs, like Eraserhead? (laughs) That fucking book. I read all in one sitting, sick as a dog, depressed out of my mind, and stoned on cough syrup. Like, you would not believe. Like, that, that adult mistake that adults make with DayQuil sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And when you get the DayQuil and the DayQuil mixed up, so you just take more DayQuil and you're just the wreck anyway, and you're so sick you can't think. And, um, yeah. I have chronic bronchitis, so it was one of those where I'm, like, teetering on the edge of pneumonia and sick with like probably three or four other flus i don't know what the fuck was going on my head was a fucking mess and i read in about two hours <laughs> the entirety of people live still in cash down corners and it's a fucking surreal nightmare that book as well it's a serial killer story basically very very graphic very very scary very 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 untoward and it messes with your head on a good day. And to read that entire book all in one sitting, sick as a dog and stoned on some substance, was a real trip. Thank you, Mr. Burgess. People who have watched Pontypool might be familiar with Tony Burgess. Um, so I am so pleased because I'd said when I reviewed the book for Typical Books on my YouTube channel, I'd love to see this adapted as a film, but I cannot envision it. I don't know how to approach this material. And then when me and Tyson got talking and he's chosen to do this film, I thought it's a no-brainer. This is the only filmmaker I can really envision being able to bring this to the screen properly. So I'm so fucking excited. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if the work that he does and his team do that they did on Stillborn, I think we're in good hands here. 
I think that it's going to be something really, really cool. Because Stillborn is amazing. So it's a it's a short little story, creepy as fuck, really leaves you thinking. Shot impeccably. Yeah. 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 It's it's a very very beautiful story, and it's a very very creepy story, and it's just acted and shot just quite wonderfully. I really enjoy that short film. I I hope to see it on a streamer like Shutter is doing shorts and stuff now, which is super cool for like Vimeo does short films as well but as far as a streamer presenting short films if netflix showed shorts i think it would be a real boon to filmmakers but they don't so whatever but shutter does Mm -hmm. so i hope that people will be able to see it in the future or who knows if it'll be an extra when people live still in cashtown corners ends up out in the masses and available that'd be a cool little bonus put that on your dvd when you release it fuck yeah do that yeah i think that'd be cool but who knows if it'll be available sometime before then once it's done its festival circuit we'll see Mm -hmm. Uh, i just hope people are able to see it sometime in the future because it's really really worth it and it'll give you a uh, it'll whet your appetite for the upcoming villain media tony bridges extravaganza Mm -hmm. but speaking of books lynch cites nikolai gogol's work as an influence for Eraserhead. And watching Eraserhead, I'm like, okay, Russian surrealist fiction philosophy. I can see how that fits. But then I picked up Diary of a Madman because I'm blessed with having like extra books at my disposal here. And there was this one little bit in Diary of a Madman that reminded me so much of this. And I started laughing because it is a really funny story, actually, Diary of a Madman. Um, I confess I felt deeply troubled when I considered how unusually delicate and insubstantial the moon is. The moon, as everyone knows, is usually made in Hamburg, and they make a complete hash of it. I'm surprised that the English don't do something about it. The moon is manufactured by a lame cooper, and it's obvious the idiot has no idea what it should be made of. The materials he uses are tarred rope and linseed oil, and that's why there's such a terrible stink all over the earth which makes us stop our noses up, and it explains why the moon is such a delicate sphere and why people can't live there, only noses. For this reason, we can't see our own noses anymore, as they're all on the moon. (laughs) It's the diary of a madman. Like, what do you expect? Yeah. The next entry happens on January in the same year following after February. So it's, it's dated. It's an epistolary story so the dates make no sense and it reminds me a lot of Eraserhead. so once i read that i'm like okay okay i definitely see this gagal himself and diary of a madman specifically has been described as the essential absurdity and tragedy of life where dream and reality merge so that we have no means of distinguishing what is true from the illusory what has value and what is worthless. This is Gogol's vision of the world, and in Diary are voiced many of the author's own thwarted desires and obsessions. A so-be-it critic has written no other story of Gogol's is packed with comedy as the Diary of a Madman, and yet this is a tragedy, which is sort of like a racer head. There's things domestically you'll pick out that are very comedic. We did actually laugh quite a bit and make fun of uh, human life like we do yeah but it is a dark absurdist tragedy by and large really similar to google's work which made me want to finish reading uh some of the selected stories of nikolai google but that makes it seem like so much more brainy than it needs to be right because this is a horror movie suggested by horror fans it's basically a body horror film and it's a dark absurdist horror film so we we gotta like make it not so brainy. When was the first time that you were ever 
subject to Eraserhead? When was the first time it crossed your path? My first encounter with this film is first seeing images of it or unimaged, that same image that we've all seen. That shot of Henry looking kind of confused or frustrated with all that dust floating around him. It was on a t-shirt and underneath the t-shirt it said Eraserhead on it. And that was my first encounter. My second encounter with the film where, you know, the first time that you hear mention of something and it just falls out of your brain. And then what really brings it back to the fact that, you know, oh, no, I know this information. It's not something that I've forgotten. Yeah, it takes like three mentions or so and then it starts to stick. So the second mention I ever got about it was the fact that, uh, for those of you who don't know, I I know Lydia knows this, but my father handled the books. He was an accountant. He did a lot of uh, stuff for businesses around town. That included the Mayfair Theater. And he was friends with the dude that ran the place named Dave. Dave in his office had this picture of the Mayfair Theater that somebody had taken, and it was just... Here's a theater. And on the marquee of the Mayfair was Eraserhead. So every time I saw this photo, I would always see the marquee of Eraserhead. And so it always stayed fairly top of mind. Years later, when my father died and Dave no longer was going to be managing the Mayfair Theater, I remember him cleaning out his office and my mother uh, called me and had asked, oh, you know... There's this photo of the Mayfair Theater. Do you want it? And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought I knew which photo it was, but I I wasn't exactly sure which photo. And sure enough, when it came, and and it came in this beautiful old frame, and here's the photo. And yeah, sure enough, it was that picture with the marquee of Eraserhead on it. It's kind of like a famous photo, too, because once you mentioned that, I was like, I know exactly what photo. I've never seen this photo that you own, but I've seen copies of this photo. They've used it quite a lot for promotion. So that's Mm -hmm. really fucking cool that you have this like mid-century modern bit of memorabilia from Ottawa (laughs) and the Mayfair itself. And it's crazy because until you mentioned that, that, oh, that's that's a kind of a famous photo. It never dawned on me that it was just a photo of the Mayfair Theater that I have, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it doesn't really strike me as something overly significant, aside from the fact that it's significant to me, because my memories of the Mayfair Theater are really important to me, mm-hmm. and my father's connection to that place, and the fact that I have a deep connection to that place, and so I wanted the photo because I always saw it hanging there. Right, so it's probably being so popularized because it says eraser head on it. Yeah. Um. Aside from Jay Retard being a musician that's influenced by that song, my first connection to eraser head, the first time I ever heard it mentioned, was in the Dead Kennedys song "Too Drunk to Fuck," <laughs> and the portion of the song goes a little like this: mm. "I like your stories. I love your gun." Shooting out truck tires sounds like loads and loads of fun. But in my room, wish you were dead, you ball like the baby in eraser head. Too drunk to fuck. Too drunk to fuck. Too drunk. Too fuck. It's all I need right now. Too drunk to fuck. So hearing that, I was like, what What baby in a razor head? What are you talking about? And mm-hmm. flipped open a book because the internet didn't fucking exist when this album came out. You like go to a library, go through the Dewey Decimal System, maybe traverse some microfiche. No, I think I probably cracked open like top 
films of the last hundred years book kind of thing. Oh, that's yeah. less fun. Yeah, I didn't need to pull out the microfiche to access Eraserhead thanks to Dead Kennedy's lyrics. But that was my first introduction to Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. That's where I started following. Like, that's when I got interested in Lynch films, actually. And it wasn't long after mm -hmm. that people got all uh, tied up in a knot over Twin Peaks. So then I became an actual bona fide Lynch fan at that point. Yeah, I was familiar with Twin Peaks before I even realized that this David Lynch character had anything to do with this film called Eraserhead. Because again, even though I was vaguely aware of this film, I had not watched it. I remember watching the whole thing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. That's where I first saw it. So we're talking years later when I was in college and it started to become important to me that I was knocking out those very famous films. I really wanted to, to tackle it and I eventually got to it and I watched it. And I sort of scratched my head and said, wow, this is fucking weird. And I don't know if I really like it, but it got shuffled away. And so I'm glad that we had an opportunity to revisit it now. But what was your knee jerk interpretation or reaction to the first time you saw Eraserhead? Because I'll be honest with you, the first time I ever watched it, I just was kind of confused. I didn't really know what to make of it. And it wasn't until really sitting on it for a little while, thinking about it afterwards, that I started to piece together. And now watching it this time, I found it a much more coherent story than I even remembered. I was really bored the first time I watched it. Mm -hmm. Very, very bored. And I wouldn't say the story was incoherent the first time I watched it, but it, within moments I was like, oh, this is one of those art films where I'm going to have to turn my brain write the fuck on mm -hmm. or turn it right the fuck off which is probably why a lot of people suggest and you can't visit a forum where people discuss in this movie without somebody saying watch it stoned which i think you know drugs and alcohol are not performance enhancing materials like mm -hmm. i can't see you getting any more out of this film stoned or drunk like i think it would actually be even more boring and more confusing so i can't recommend that personally not that I have anything against drugs or alcohol obviously yeah i do recommend reading tony burgess stories with a head full of fucking cough syrup yeah but, but it comes from this weird headspace that a lot of people who i find don't do recreational drugs all that often usually say things like oh yeah they were on drugs when they made this or you should take drugs while you watch this it comes from this weird headspace that people believe that if you take drugs you can do something that you couldn't do before. <laughs> which is, which or, makes no sense. Yeah. I, I was like, drugs certainly make you less inhibited. Weed, for example, makes you less inhibited and relaxes you and can give you kind of a hazy perception where it might make you more interested in having existential thoughts. I suppose it would be performance enhancing when it comes to alphabetizing an entire library. Yeah. Yes. But like... It's not going to have that. It doesn't work the other direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you're watching the film, you're not going to become yeah. more creative, thus be able to understand the creativity being presented to you. Yeah. Which a lot of the time, most of the time, probably let's just be an asshole and say all of the time, these things aren't created in a drug-fueled frenzy. No, not normally. And when they are, <laughs> when, when sometimes when people say things that are, I was so whacked out when I made this. Stephen King. Like Cujo. Like Cujo. Well, you know, you can't tell. You can't really tell that he would be so fucked up 
that when he when they when he was writing that and then later becomes a film or you maximum overdrive like you know by his own admission he was like whacked out on blow when he was making it so i i think what i'm trying to say is what you were just saying drugs is not a magic pill in which you can't do something and then you can that's how come i'm saying that it makes me feel less inhibited so it makes you go with your ideas more to be to be as bold as you creatively want to be as opposed to second guessing yourself like oh don't do that someone else did that or oh that's that's not interesting or people are going to hate this when you're kind of hopped up on something you're like fuck it this is what we're doing and people will, will like it but yeah i don't uh, and i jokingly said that oh i should have been a, i should have smoked a joint before i got here smooth out some of the rough spots what i'm really saying is Sometimes I'm worried that I have a hard time paying attention to movies like this. And admittedly, I did grab my phone a couple of times. But it was only to do research about Eraserhead and not check who's liking my stuff on Instagram. I did I did too. And I normally don't touch my phone during a phone, but I was looking up things like the plot line of Rabbits, which is hilarious. Because if you're going to look at the plot line of Eraserhead, you got about six or seven plot points otherwise it's all dream sequence basically Mm -hmm. um that you need to really interpret a little deeper than just the static plot points Mm -hmm. i think rabbits is an even better example of a lynch film that has very few static plot points you know like jack the rabbit walks in the room the audience goes wild Mm -hmm. there is a knock at the door later on at the climax of the film you know like it's or the it's a series actually it's a sitcom um, very, very valuable Lynch thing to watch, I think, is Rabbits because it features this box set of a living room very similar to the Simpsons living room and very similar to the X family living room in Eraserhead. So the plot points of Rabbits were wild interest to me. <laughs> Um, and I've taken a lot of Lynch back to rabbits and I'm sure David Lynch has taken a lot of his own work back to rabbits and rabbits came out of so much of his own work. It's sort of like the Lynch pin, if you will. Mm, Uh See what I did there. Yeah. You're right. Right. Right in front of me. I know. Right. Um, so I definitely had to like revisit a little bit of that while watching it. And it does leave ample room. If you've seen Eraserhead before, you know where those spots are where you can sort of just kind of check your phone. (laughs) <laughs> i wouldn't recommend it though on the first watch through no way i think you really need to dial in and i i wouldn't recommend drugs and i wouldn't even recommend watching this for the first time with other people no unless it's somebody like you and i could have watched this for our first time and pay very close attention mean amy amy's seen a razor head i trust because she is a um She's an academic She's about a film this. doctor. Yeah. But um, th- that's the sort of person that I would recommend watching with, if anyone at all. But I do agree with you. You should watch it with your fucking head turned on and alone. Absolutely. The plot of this movie, for those of you who have never seen Eraserhead, what do you say? So Henry knocks up Mary. Yeah. Henry is a man with Beekman's world hair who lives a very isolated life in a very small apartment. And he has a fling with a lady and it involves, and it results in a pregnancy. And he doesn't have a lot of contact with this woman after the fact. And the film itself starts out looking at this planetoid or this moon or this something as this factory worker, this dirty factory worker 
is looking out a window. And then we see Henry looking out a window. And then we see Henry leaving his work. He's a factory worker. He's in printing. And then eventually his neighbor tells him that via the phone downstairs, which I always think is so adorable. I'm like, oh, yeah, like we I don't have a phone. There's a phone in the lobby of my building that I have to answer if people want to call me. Very 60s and 70s, big city. Oh, my God. Hell yeah. And I love that sort of shit because we're definitely in the realm of our weird obsession with cities in the 1970s and 80s. And he finds out that his lady, Mary, wants him over for dinner. And so he comes over for dinner and it's this very bizarre conversation where his Mary's mother doesn't seem all that into him, asking him what he does for a living. It's very... She kind of reminds me of that famous painting mother where she's just sitting in that chair. But she's not wearing a bonnet. Whistler's mother. Whistler's yeah. mother. That's yeah. right. I'm saying. Yeah. And she does kind of. You're totally right. Yeah. Th- minus what, the bonnet. Yeah. Mi- minus the bonnet and minus the necking that's going to happen in a minute. Mm-hmm. Which is a little, a little hot. Do you think? Oh, yeah. Okay. And then she meets her father <laughs> and they have a chicken dinner. And the way I'm describing this is so boring, I know. But what you have to understand is everyone is acting so strange. People are having outbursts that no one are acknowledging. Things that look like seizures. Things that look like seizures. This factory worker is this controller that lives in the moon that is controlling a sperm that has emerged from Henry's mouth. Yeah. Like it's little stuff like that that if you're not talking about static plot points, it it seems like a very boring film. Yeah, absolutely. Mary's father is sitting there hanging out, telling them about these weird chickens that they get that are all manufactured. They look just like regular chickens except they're fucking small. And that's what they're having for dinner. And while they sit down at the table and Henry starts carving the chickens start to seep blood. His mother has this bizarre seizure that goes on forever. And Mary and her mother leave the room. And then by the time they come back, Mary's mother wants to speak to Henry about, have you ever had sexual intercourse with my daughter? And then when he won't answer directly, because it's a very abrupt question, it's very weird. She starts sucking on his neck and pushing him up against a wall and wanting an answer out of him. Mary shows up and pulls her mother off of him, but it doesn't seem to be that the necking's the problem. It's just that she's demanding an answer. And yeah, she not it's not the information that she's pregnant. The information is she was pregnant. That's a baby in the hospital. And if you could call it a baby. And you have to get married. You have to get married and you have to take care of this baby. And so that's what's gonna happen. And what is this child? What is this child? This child, it looked like a stillborn sheep to me, like a sheep fetus. That's what a lot of people talk about. And in fact, with the um, special effects, people have posited that it was actually a sheep or goat fetus or cow fetus, some sort of like farmland creature fetus Mm -hmm. that he had uh, repurposed somehow and made animatronic for this, which no one really knows. No one really knows. It's just a... And David Lynch fucks with people. He yeah. won't tell. That's that's the, the interesting thing. No one really makes anything. You know, that's one of his answers to how do they make the, the baby in a racer head. Yeah. Um, that or things like they found it. He's, he's said that they found it. 
Uh, it apparently doesn't exist anymore. They buried it afterward. And ha- had a wake for it. Yeah. At the rap party. Yeah. This is, David Lynch is a dude, for those of you who don't know, who is very much that artsy-fartsy weirdo that makes movies. Oh, come on. I think he's a perfectly regular man. Have you ever listened to his weather reports? He does weather reports. What kind of fucked up, strange, artsy-fartsy person would do weather reports? None of them. But don't you understand that he's doing a thing He with his weather reports? He's doing a thing. I thought that they were just weather reports and I took them as such. Thank you, sir. He also has a video on his YouTube about how to cook quinoa. And if anyone's ever been curious about how to cook quinoa or interested in what quinoa can do for you or how, like, what you can put with quinoa and how long it takes, all those little details David Lynch covers in his video on how to cook quinoa. And it's probably the most serious video I've ever seen on YouTube, the most serious piece of work I've ever seen from David Lynch. And it's the most fascinating cooking show, if you want to put it that way. It's brilliant shit. I could really go for some quinoa right now. Well, you'd have to make it the way David Lynch makes it. Because once I saw that, it's not that I realized I was making quinoa all wrong, because I wasn't. But I wasn't making it right. There's three ways to make quinoa. The right way, the wrong way, and the Lynchian way. Totally, yeah. And I've never tried his coffee either. Like, There's things that he does that aren't necessarily a shtick. Or an art piece. I think it's really just him being him. Hoots is a fucking weird guy. I don't know. It depends on your definition of weird. I don't I don't know if I'd find David Lynch very weird unless he was directing me. Because I gotta see that being weird. The reason why I think he's weird is not because he creates weird art. Mm-hmm. It's because of the fact that he won't relent on this persona. He's very much obsessed with the idea of hiding how things are made now maybe it is his attitude of there's too much information these days whatever happened to you don't know how something was made or why is it important how something was made why do we need to know everything that or it's his way also of being like you are a fucking idiot so somebody looks at a latex puppet that's used as special effects in a film and says oh my god how did you make the baby and he's thinking to himself it's a latex fucking puppet used as special effects in a film made like any other fucking latex effect you dumbass so then he turns to them and says we found it yeah (laughs) but that's what I mean is because he's fucking with people saves time I don't know partially fucking with people partially just doesn't want to take the time but then it becomes fun to take the time to explain that it's probably a creature and people don't actually make anything in the world seems appropriate from a dude that brought us a racer fucking head mm-hmm. now if you're looking for some really neat little tiny horror ties in this the uh, man in the planet the that's pulling the levers that launches a sperm uh, at the very beginning of the film mm-hmm. um that is Jack Fisk. And he just came off of working on The Revenant as um, in production design. He's one of the production designers, I suppose, in The Revenant. And he's the husband of Sissy Spacek. Ooh. Everyone loves Sissy Spacek. I know I do. Yeah, totally. So that's like some cute little horror trivia. I like it. As it were. Mm-hmm. And also Jack Nance, the guy playing Henry, our lead role. Um Henry Spencer, Eraserhead himself, I suppose. Mm-hmm. The um, He's been on a lot of Lynch's work, for sure, and most notably Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. and where he plays 
Pete Martel. And one of my favorite lines in the entire Twin Peaks franchise is when they first discover the body of Laura Palmer, and he's explaining that they found her wrapped in plastic. It's like the number one most amazing line in all of film, in my mind. Because um, it, it is a quotable thing that no one really gets when I say it, and it cr- runs across my mind quite often. You wrap anything in plastic, and I'm thinking of uh, Pete Martel. <laughs> Basically Jack Nance, who looks like a really young Tim Robbins in this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he really, really, really does. Mm-hmm. Really captivating performance. Um, him and the baby, whatever the fuck it is. And mm-hmm. I don't remember, like, was it born wrapped in the fucking gauze? So you don't know. The first time we see this is where Mary is tending to this creature, this child, this baby, whatever you want to call it. This little dose of movie magic. This little tiny shrieking enigma. Wrapped in this swaddling cloth. A lot like Prince Radian from Todd Browning's Freaks. Yeah, absolutely. Now, but we're not going to see this thing light a cigarette on its own. Damn. But what we are going to see is this thing wailing. Just absolutely wailing. And we seem to get the sense that Henry and his good lady wife now are settling into an uncomfortable yet a typical domestic relationship. This is a young family in a very small apartment. They seem to have the normal stresses that anyone would have. Yeah, lack of sleep, screaming baby, postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. This screaming of this infant drives Mary away in the middle of the night because she can't get a good night's sleep. And... That's not abnormal. And I really, you know, I would probably recommend that people who have been dumb enough to have children, that if they're getting stressed out to that point and they're taking things out on other people and they can't think right at work because they're up all night with this baby, fucking take a break. There's probably two of you or there's somebody else that can take care of the baby. You need to take time for your fucking self. Oh, my God. Um, Please stop ruining the entire world for everybody else and just get some fucking proper sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. And she has the right idea, I think. Yeah. Tally-ho. See you later, buddy. You take care of the screaming weasel on the fucking countertop. Yeah. That's what it is. They just leave it on the countertop with a little pillow. Henry is left by himself and feels absolutely trapped in the apartment. Anytime he tries to leave, this thing starts wailing. Is it not illegal to leave a newborn child unattended in an apartment? I don't know the laws, but... Maybe in the in the 1970s, things were a little bit more loosey-goosey. They definitely were. I don't even know where he thought he was going. Maybe to his neighbor's house. Maybe. She's pretty. She is very pretty. She gives him the eye. That look. Oh, yeah. She's going to give him more than that eventually. But he is essentially stuck there in his estimation. And then the baby gets sick. Puts a little humidifier next to its head. This thing is fucking grotesque. All the while, there are little things, subtle things that are going on inside of Henry's apartment that we're ignoring. How about the fact that there's just mounds of soil everywhere? Yeah, and I think that that's a lot to do. Like, you can you can sit here and interpret everything. Um, a lot to do with the, the larger theme I get from this. A lot of people will look at larger themes of... Uh, human relationships and sexual relationships and reproduction and things like that and the family unit and things like that um and men's sexuality there's a lot of like big themes like that 
that are woven into this, but I really think it's a larger study on depression and the things that can go on around you that you don't notice when you're that depressed, or it might as well be this fucked up and you wouldn't notice because you're depressed. You really do not give a fucking shit. And all the stuff on your shelves might as well be piles of dirt because you don't, doesn't matter. And the things that are there are basically piles of dirt anyway. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of really weird things like that, like the piles of dirt surrounding his radiator, the piles of dirt on every bookshelf, even Mary's parents' house has elements like that too, mm -hmm. which is just fucking strange, but I'm very at home with it. So like you said that we hadn't mentioned it, we've ignored these things partially and they're kind of ignorable too. They are ignorable, but it does speak largely to, I think, Henry's psychosis. Either he's looking at material possessions as basically dirt, mm -hmm. or it could be another interpretation of the fact that Henry himself might view any sort of dust or dirt or grime or whatever as if you have a little dust on the table in his estimation you have a giant pile of fucking dirt and manure all over the place it's the idea of oh i'm single and i'm in a messy apartment so the mess is put into a very literal term of just dirt everywhere and this baby is an absolutely normal baby a bouncing bundle of joy yeah. that cries once in a while like babies tend to do but this mm -hmm. is what he's seeing mm -hmm. this fucking mewling insectoid slash fetus looking alien creature yeah with bug eyes and is drooling fucking shit all the time and screaming its head off mm -hmm. yeah and it isn't that's not what it looks like mm -hmm. it's not piles of dirt on the shelves and it's not fucking shredded coconut husk on the floor and it's not this alien baby it's books on the shelf a little bit of dust under the rad and a normal baby yeah yeah when he's also distracted supremely distracted while mary's still present we see a little glimpse of the radiator the radiator glows there's something there but it goes away and we don't see it again this whatever it is, until after he has a little affair, a little tryst with the lady across the way, who, even after his wife had left in a huff and doesn't really seem like she wants to even come back, he ends up sleeping with her. And again, it's a very surrealist moment in which they're in the bed that is all indented, full of liquid. I get that. How is that surreal? I don't What the fuck? Well, sex is a very messy, liquidy, gooey business. I hear. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm can't wait till it happens to me for the first time. But from what I understand, the, the books that I read, the textbooks, that it can be a very slippery, gooey, messy situation. Every bed turns into a cauldron of sperm. Yeah, it's, you're basically sitting in a cistern of, <laughs> of sperm. Yeah, I don't think it's a surrealist moment at all. There's many surrealist moments in this movie, granted, but the sex scene is not one of them. And I digress, because it is a very, very strange sex scene, and they end up drowning in this uh, cauldron of sperm mm -hmm. that the bed has become. Yeah. Un not unlike drowning in um, the waterbed in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very much that. Or similar to that, anyways. At some point after this fact, when Henry, after Henry's episode is over, I remember the the scene where he's just sort of staring at his bed, this, this, the ground zero of his indiscretion, just sort of staring at it while this baby is there. That's weird. Like, do you have sex in the same room as your baby? Is that weird? 
like, let me ask you this. If you have a baby and the baby's in the room with you, is can you jerk off in the room? That's weird to me. I, I think you should leave the room. That seems really weird to me. And unfortunately, I think many people do it anyway, though. Yeah. I really, really do. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that are that are pretty sure that children aren't even human until they're like 10 years old or something or prove it or something mm-hmm. and that they're not sentient they wouldn't think that's weird and also their mind isn't going there so they're not like thinking a creepy weird twisted pedophilic strange scarring my children for life thoughts they're just jerking off and babies even asleep or awake it doesn't seem to matter really mm-hmm. I, I swear that that probably happens more often than we'd ever want to accept happening mm-hmm. and there's many people who would never ever admit to something like that in polite company whatsoever but that do do that because I guess that the urge the uh the The need need with the capital n need would overtake most sensibility in most in a lot of people i think it's fucking that's fucking creepy but i think uh doing lots of stuff in the same room as a kid is creepy yeah sitting there reading watching television making a sandwich making a sandwich talking at all yeah listening to music (laughs) breathing That's why the kids all got to sit out in the yard. <laughs> like puppies. <laughs> What's in the radiator, Lydia? There's a girl in the radiator. Is it a normal girl, perhaps? I think she's perfectly normal. She does have some uh, protuberance from her face. It's almost like jowls, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think it's a weird infantilization of an adult woman. They're trying to make that cabbage patch kid puffy. Totally like cheeks and yeah, yeah, and the and the way that uh, the the cheeks would puff up with a big smile and that um, just glowing happiness, never ending happiness. So mm-hmm. happy your face might split open mm-hmm. any fucking second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's adorable, uh, like a cabbage patch doll. Yeah, yeah. and she is doing a weird shuffle dance and stepping on sperm as it drops down. There's a lot of interpretation of this film that say that the baby, the sperm, all of this stuff, what it truly represents is Henry's anxiety. And what this woman within the radiator represents is bliss, is comfort, is something that can attack his anxiety. Yeah, way to overcome this. Yes. And so it seems to be from that perspective, at the very least, that he finds comfort in this image and then we're left there again laying in bed uncomfortably yeah something that he does quite often <laughs> I, I can imagine lynch's direction like you know just lay there okay now lay like this now how do you feel horrible good we're rolling yeah um, he, he's all right you're in bed now imagine this isn't a bed this is a hospital and you're having a cat scan lie like that yeah he's even doing like the nervous fiddling picking at things picking at that like he can't move blanket. yeah 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 and crippling fucking anxiety is absolutely like that. he notices that the woman across the hall has taken another lover this is the type of woman that she is just uh having dudes over whatever which is kind of good because i guess she wouldn't tell his wife that they fucked yeah that's true and the last time that we even see his wife in this entire film it's when they're having it's kind of a funny moment where it's that moment where you're sick of your spouse right that's what it is. She's hogging the side of the bed. She won't move. She's twitching. She's rubbing her eye and it's making... She may as well be grinding sandpaper against uh, each other. Probably one of the most disgusting moments in this film. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is speaking to your anxieties. Yeah. The sounds of like... The, oh, and that's yeah. the last time we ever see her. 
-hmm. And then the rest of the film is really on his shoulders. It really, really is because he has to act alongside this fucking shriveled thing, which takes sick, which cries when he tries to leave. And it is just this sense of him wanting to leave, wanting to get out. He's been on vacation this whole week, which is a good excuse about why he doesn't have to go to work. And it culminates into a song, a song that you were looking forward to. Yeah. In heaven, everything is fine. Mm-hmm. Seems to be this really comforting song that he's watching, but not before his head falls off and lands on the stage. And then his shriveled baby head grows out of the his torso. Mm-hmm. And then his head falls into the puddle of blood in the stage, lands on the street where a homeless person is sleeping, and a young boy grabs the head, brings it to a factory, mm-hmm. and then the fa- the factory owner seems delighted that this is a thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I'm saying. Like, it was a pencil factory, and I'm wondering where he got this pencil eraser placing on machine thing. Um, I really enjoy this scene, and I do wonder how much the boy was paid for the head. And mm-hmm. if he's like, you know, if he's if he's had a good run as a severed head collector, like, like sort of like a shoe shine, it's like a step above a shoe shine and a step below a chimney sweep or something like that. Mm-hmm. I I'm picturing mm-hmm. um, where he finds the severed heads probably often, hopefully, if he's making a living doing this. Mm-hmm. And what sort of eraser? would a human brain make? Because I've used some really good gum erasers. I've used good electric erasers. I have some nice white erasers upstairs. I don't like pink pearl erasers at all. They're horrible sandy things. Like I don't like a sandy eraser. Uh, I like a, a soft gummy eraser. I really enjoy a gum eraser. There's some other um, more like tacky erasers that are almost like a Play-Doh. I like those, but they tend to pick up too much oil and grime. I want it to just pick up carpet, right? Gum eraser is probably the best for that. Yeah, Stadler makes some really good white erasers if you're looking for good erasers, actually. This has been our new eraser fan cast where we just <laughs> talk about all the fucking erasers that Lydia likes to use. Stadler. I really recommend it. I've I thought about it. I, I really have to say Stadler makes <laughs> the best erasers. What do you think it means? Oh, I, I didn't care what it means. <laughs> you're just thinking about what erasers you like the best? Mostly. <laughs> what, do, what do I think it means? This scene is like a cleanse palette to bring us into the next scene. It's something to be said that he has a head full of nothing, that this is ground zero and resetting and restarting all over again. Mm-hmm. You'd have to ask David Lynch and you think you're going to get a straight answer out of him. And I'll bet you he would agree with me on the Stadlers. <laughs> when Henry looks out his window again, he sees an attack that's happening. And... I didn't look too closely. Um, and I've never looked too closely because, like, when you, we were watching this and the attack was happening, you're like, oh, well, that's probably... I usually... That's probably, probably fine. That's probably fine. It's probably fine. And that's sort of my attitude about this scene, too, because that's Henry's attitude about this scene. He looks out and sees people fighting and thinks, oh, that's probably fine and goes back to what he's doing. Um, is it the homeless guy beating up on the kid? No, it's it's a random act of violence. It is a random act of violence. This okay. seems to be a bit of a linchpin itself in terms of what the film's narrative could be talking about. Again, there's a lot of theories out there. This is not my original idea. However, it is one that I lean the most towards when it comes to what this film 
is ultimately about. Because of the fact that you're going out of the, you're like Henry's wistfully looking out of his window numerous times throughout this film. And the fact that this scene when he's looking at the attack is a mirrored scene from the first time that we see Henry. And again, that factory worker looking in the moon, that lives on the moon, also is involved in this scene as well. And then this scene happens with the death of this weird baby, which we're going to talk about soon, because holy fuck. Yeah, yeah. But it is posited by people smarter than I am that this random act of violence is not happening in the real time. This random act of violence is what he has seen in the first place that has caused crippling anxiety, the fear of living in this city. And the baby itself is not real. What the baby is, is his mind creating an excuse to stay indoors because he's so afraid to leave the house. Mm -hmm. And every time he tries to leave his house, this crippling anxiety cries to him, brings him back in, or this crippling anxiety is sick and needs his care. And so the ending of the film, in some interpretations, is very positive because even though you look at it as him cutting the bandages off of this baby that have been it's been swaddled in this entire time and you realize it starts making this horrible fucking utterance as you're cutting through it i like that right before it it's laughing at him yeah and that's um probably my favorite sound that this baby makes is that the laughing is and it is mocking him it does mock him as he cuts it open to reveal what's under the bandages it turns out that the bandages aren't bandages but it's fucking body yeah, it has no skin at all. The bandages are holding in all of its organs. And then when you see what it could be, this thing's heart and lungs. Or chicken dinner. Or chicken dinner. He stabs it with the scissors. Mm-hmm. And then this thing erupts in blood and convulsions. And then this white postule starts to, or like, posture starts to pour yeah, out of the body. Very, very similar to Garmin Bows. Yeah, it's likely cream corn. Mm-hmm. It could be cream of wheat. Mm-hmm. It is a creamed food substance of some sort or another, I swear. Or sperm, but the curdled sperm. And then the head of this thing, as, as it just erupts in blood and gore and gross, the head starts to elongate and try to separate itself from the body. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this big fucking thing within his room that flips around and then when it vanishes he's now in this white space with this woman bliss in the radiator that gives him a big reassuring hug and then we're kind of out of here again him conquering his own anxiety this is just one interpretation there's a lot of interpretations about this film being the anxieties and fears around being a father and early parenthood. And or just the, sex is violence uh, entirely. Exactly. And, and, and he even c- could have violated his wife in bed if she hadn't violated him. Who knows when he's finding his uh, nocturnal emissions, mm-hmm. as it were. Like, if that's what those giant sperms he was pulling out of the bed and throwing against the wall were. Um, whether he had felt violated by her or whether he had felt he had violated her. The uh, beating outside, some have posited that that's uh, his reflection of the sex act that mm-hmm. had created this baby. And it's not actually happening. It's him thinking about that mm-hmm. initial yeah. sex act and the violence um, where the girl in the radiator has a certain innocence. She doesn't seem to care so much about sex to the point that she's um, 
probably barren, crushing sperm like it's no big deal, uh, which is like how I spend most of my days, just yeah. stepping on little buggers. Like, I think that she also represents that that nice eternal bliss love and a partner who isn't going to be forcing him into these uncomfortable situations with parents and babies and violence and sex and all those things that come along with a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like the agoraphobic angle much better. Yeah. It, it's, it really buzzed me because it seems like an idea that is even further below the surface than people's anxieties about sex and, and parenthood and all that kind of stuff. Yes, children are a massive responsibility. Yes, sex comes with it all kinds of problems. And yes, we can sometimes feel forced into domestic roles that we're fearful of all because you want to get laid all because you want to get laid um but the but the but the idea of this agoraphobic angle is very fascinating to me and it's the one that i think yeah okay i understand because it does all kind of click however david lynch himself has said that nobody has gotten it as far as he's saying now there's an aspect of my brain that is saying you're just saying that because you want people to keep trying to think about it as opposed to being, oh, that's what it's about. And then moving on. That's because that's exactly what would happen. You would, the second he says 100%, this is what Eraserhead is about. He knows people stop talking about Eraserhead. But if he's just like, oh, no one's really gotten it. Then people would just keep thinking about it. So he could try to be sustaining his own relevance. I don't know why that, um, that's a shitty way, a shitty way of looking at it, but the other part of my brain is saying there might be something more within the surface or what he means to say is the exact absolute thing that he was talking about. People haven't really gotten, yeah. but they've probably gotten pretty close because I can't imagine these images meaning anything other than the stuff that we've been talking about. Yes, there's like several interpretations, but there's not a thousand interpretations of them, right? And I think that what people love the most about this film and why I think that it has left such an indelible mark on film is because it is pretty fun to talk about. More fun than I would honestly say watching it. Yeah, well, I don't know. I I have a lot of fun watching it um, and thinking about it all by myself. That is to say not much fun at all because I do still find it kind of a sleeper. Um, It's interesting. Yeah, there's far more interesting films it's not that gory really there's far more gory films uh, yeah i yeah. I, I think that when you're talking about the death of this child that is hands down the goriest thing that you're going to see in this film i mean yes there's blood and shit coming out when uh henry's head pops off and whatever it's almost too weird to be scary though it's almost too weird to be gory that's the thing because yeah. you're, you're 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 spending more time scratching your head about it mm-hmm mm-hmm it is a really interesting watch, and if um, if anything, if you're in that mindset, you know, you're feeling kind of low and quiet and want something on in the background where your mind can drift elsewhere, mm-hmm. and maybe that's what it takes to interpret this film properly is not paying attention to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I find Rabbits is a lot like that, too. Mm-hmm. Inland Empire is a lot like that. And Mulholland mm-hmm. Drive somewhat. Uh, as he gets more mainstream, you have to pay a little closer attention and don't bother interpreting and take it sort of more at face value, I think. Yeah. Um, but like this and rabbits specifically, it's a lot easier if you let your mind drift and think about your own things, maybe apply your own interpretations to it instead of searching for what his was. 
or focusing more on how this film makes you feel, as opposed to trying to directly interpret what it means. If you feel uncomfortable, confused, isolated, and while you watch this film, then ultimately you're drawing on your own life and and what these images represent for you. That and and that's what's evoking the emotions. Things reminding you of like, oh man, I've I feel so trapped in my apartment. Sometimes I have nothing to do. Or oh man, I'm a new father. I'm a new mother. And oh my god, the anxieties of the children. I've been there. Or oh my god, meeting someone's parents that you're in a relationship with. That's the fucking worst for me. Or all that dirt on my bookshelf. All my dirt on my bookshelf. Or or not knowing how do I carve this? How do I carve this chicken? Is this how I do it? Or whatever you paying think the electricity it is. costs. Yeah everything anything that's what's the most important thing and so i think maybe part of what david lynch is talking about the fact that no one's really got it is because people are concentrating more on what they're watching and not how they're feeling but i but i think that the people that tap into how the film makes them feel and if it is uneasy anxious fearful that i think maybe is what always makes people lump this in with horror because it's about life and life is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get it. If I were to just be an armchair philosopher for two seconds. No, no, I think that that's fine. That's a good, it's a, probably the closest thing to an interpretation of why this is horror that I've ever really heard that I can believe in. You know what else I believe in? Was that? Jack Fisk, the guy that plays the man in the moon, has the same birthday as me. <laughs> hmm. That's adorable. <laughs> That moon's destruction at the end, very cool and explosive. And one of the things that really reminds me of Tetsuo, just like these random things like that. The, uh, when this moon is destroyed, when the baby dies and he hugs that cherubic, cherubic. woman. Yeah, it's the best word we can think of to describe her. She's really adorable. Yeah, she's very adorable. You can definitely say that this black lifeless cold looming object at the very least has been destroyed by the end of this film and that seems to give him the most happiness that we've ever seen of this character within this 90 minute picture Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is a really it is a really interesting journey if you take it just on the simplest plot points and and boil it down but i really like the first time i saw it um i really thought that it was silent and that Jack was screaming alone in the darkness until the sperm came out of his mouth. And it sort of started on that journey. Um, and your mind just starts going into the, the sexual psychosis of all this. But he does begin with what seems to be a man screaming alone in the dark and silence. And ends with a man coupled and smiling in the bright light in white noise. So it's like definite opposites to bookend this film. I really like that wraparound and I've always enjoyed that. So even the smallest plot points, the most literal plot points in this, um, are just the things that help him get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Anything to take him from being literally a depressed, sad, screaming in the darkness alone person to somebody who's found something or someone that can bring him into the light. If you guys haven't seen this film, the way that we're describing it as best as we can, mm-hmm. I still don't doesn't think it really does it justice. I highly recommend that 
you sit down and watch it for yourself. Sit down and watch it for yourself. If you find that it's hard to find, um, we had been asking at the turning point, and it's one of those films that Sean had said that it comes in and goes right away. So if you're looking for it in a used place and you haven't seen it on the shelf sitting there getting dusty for years, it might be a little tough to find. It's a little expensive to buy new. You can rent it, as we did. Mm -hmm. The Criterion Collection is available for rental, digital download if you want to buy it. But it was a pretty inexpensive rental on YouTube, of all places. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it's not hard to find for a rental, but it might be harder to find or pricey to find as a purchase. Absolutely, yeah. So what do we got next for him? It's going to be The Woman in Black. Oh, my God. I have been so excited to do The Woman in Black. Hammer, ghost stories, fuck yes. Because we're coming up this. on my birthday. Mm-hmm. And... Jack Fisk's birthday, as I found out today. So happy birthday, Jack Fisk. We're going to be doing The Woman in Black. In your honor. Nah, not really. Um, I had dressed up as The Woman in Black before. I really enjoy this film. I like the return to Hammer Horror. Uh, and when we were sort of wondering like, what to do for my birthday, because usually I want to do a clown film, it mm -hmm. seems. And I was going through some of the clown films. I wanted to do Clown Town because Chris had sent me a copy of Clown Town. And I really enjoyed it as far as like B-level uh, horror goes and clown invasion horror uh, that or clown house which is another classic i think and after we had done jeepers creepers i had clown house on the on the mind but we had gotten talking about uh, around halloween and i had lent my woman in black costume out and it got me excited because the person who was borrowing it had never seen the film so i had put the film on while we were doing makeup and so I got to watch it again and I got enamored with the film all over again and decided I want to do this for my birthday and I knew that you would enjoy it. Mm -hmm. This is my gift to you. <laughs> I'm a giving person that way, I suppose. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>